0: Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. In today's episode, the team discussed the 2010 HBO television film, Temple Grandin, directed by Mick Jackson and starring Claire Danes in the title role. We will be screening Temple Grandin at our Autism and Cinema season at the Barbican in London on the 16th of September 2021, which will be followed by an exclusive filmed interview with Temple Grandin herself and a Q&A with autism scholars Dr. Bonnie Evans and Dr. David Hartley. Tickets are available via the Barbican website. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the discussion. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Today we're going to be uh, talking about the 2010 film Temple Grandin, uh, the biopic Temple Grandin. Uh, Joining me today, David Hartley, I'm joined by uh, our regular contributors, uh, John James Laidlow, Alex Wilson, Georgia, Bradburn and Janet Harbort. And yeah, as I say we're going to be talking today about the uh, the, the film Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin uh, was a kind of a sort of made for TV movie uh, that screened on HBO uh, back in 2010. Uh, and then won a number of Emmy awards, I believe. I think seven in total for various things. It is a biopic of the uh, The autistic woman, Temple Grandin, who's perhaps one of the most uh, famous uh, autistic people in the world, (laughs) Um, certainly sort of one of the uh, sort of first uh, kind of well-known autistic people. And Temple, Temple Grandin was uh, somebody who, uh, as the as the film demonstrates, as the film shows, she she sort of went through school and through college and got a degree, and um, then became well known for becoming involved with uh, animal husbandry and particularly with um, slaughterhouses and uh, uh, feedlots within uh, within America. Well, we'll explain more about that, I think, when, in our discussion. And she's also then subsequently became an uh, uh, an autism advocate, an autism activist, and um, has spoken at many uh, autistic events about autism and so and so on and so forth. So this film stars Claire Danes as Temple, and it's basically a biopic. It's based on Temple Grandin's biography, Thinking in Pictures, and the film is directed by Mick Jackson, and it takes us through. Uh, Temple's life, um mostly through her sort of I would say a kind of young adult life really through her college experience and then through her um the process of her becoming involved with slaughterhouses and feedlots uh within America and and then ends with her kind of taking on her role as I suppose as a kind of autism activist and advocate. Uh, Yeah, and as I say, it was released in 2010 uh, on HBO, Um, and apparently it did win a... It sort of won... Oh, yeah, it won a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress for Claire Danes. And it's also a film that has been uh, approved by Temple Grandin herself. In fact, we are recording this podcast because uh, we have a a season of autism-based films that are being screened at the Barbican Cinema in London... And uh, this film, Temple Grandin, is the the kind of lead film, the first film that's going to be screened. And also, at the same time, uh, just before that film is screened, we have uh, ourselves recorded a short interview with Temple Grandin herself. It's a film called Seven Minutes with Temple Grandin. And that's going to be screened uh, just before the film Temple Grandin is filmed, in which... It is screened, sorry. In which... Um, we spend seven minutes with the the actual real Temple Grandin. She talks about her experience, her reaction to the film, her experience of meeting Claire Danes and uh, getting to know Claire Danes a little. And, uh, yeah, and her sort of, her enjo- her own enjoyment and approval of, of this biopic itself. Yeah, so this is the film we're going to be discussing today. And I think there's all sorts of things to talk about. It's a very interesting film in many ways. Yeah, so I think I'll just throw it open to the floor and see what... Uh, See what other people have got to say about the film. Did everybody enjoy this film? Um,
1: I, I did enjoy the film. I wasn't wasn't too sure at first um, whether I would appreciate it or not, but by the end of the film, I really enjoyed it. Um, I don't really know that much about the real the real life, Temple Grandin. I think the only only time I've encountered her was um, at at some autism training. In my old job, which was a bit weird to attend as an autistic person, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film and really connected to the character, as
0: it were. I think it's worth um, worth noting that the, the the sort of style of the film, really, I think that's one of the things that's kind of particularly interesting about this about this film is that it's one of the first kind of full length feature films that I know of that i think really takes the kind of experience of autism uh, seriously so it, it kind of tries to visualize a, quite a lot of what temple grandin herself as a person and as a character um how she sort of sees the world in a way and it's done in a in a way that's a little bit for me it's a little maybe a little bit cartoonish a little bit exaggerated but it it's it's also it's it's heartfelt and it's also kind of quite genuine i think so there so temple grandin's quite famous for for this thing that she she calls thinking in pictures and this is what this was the name of her biography on which the film was based and she sort of she sort of says that you know when she visualizes things she visualizes things in a very visual way in a kind of she thinks in pictures so she might see a um Well, the examples that the the film give in particular are like she might see like a a gate opening, and she can sort of the the idea is that she can sort of mathematically see the angles that the gate is at, and the sort of uh, the height of it, and the 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 movement of it, and that how what kind of angle that creates, Um, and then she's able to that has given her the ability to be able to sort of then see the world in a quite a sort of. Technical, almost mathematical, three dimensional way, which enables her to then become very skilled at kind of engineering and creating and crafting devices and things. So, one of the things that she does in the film is that she um, creates a, a way in which the uh, the gate that leads onto her auntie and uncle's farm, where you can sort of basically drive up to it. Pull a lever, the gate opens. You can drive through, and then the gate shuts again. Um, And this is just like a normal wooden gate. And what basically she does is she creates a sort of system of pulleys and and wires and um, weights and mechanisms and so on that enable you to basically open the gate and for the gate to close behind you without you ever having to get out of the car. And and this is demonstrated in the film by showing like. The lines and the sort of mathematical lines and equations of the angle that the gate opens, and I think this this is something that comes up regularly throughout the film, and I just thought that that was quite an interesting, and I think particularly for for two thousand and ten, quite a refreshing way of demonstrating the slightly divergent way that some autistic people can envision the world and can sort of see the world, which I think was um a, a, which I think is a really useful thing that this this film contributes there are problems with that it does perhaps suggest that you know it is a bit essentializing it sort of perhaps suggests that all autistic people constantly see the the mathematical equations that are all around us which I don't think is necessarily true but I but I felt it was a a, an interesting way a helpful way that that film itself can demonstrate a sort of different way of of seeing and thinking
2: yeah so in animated documentary sort of Theory, Bella Honestrow identified this phenomena, which is very common in animation, as evocation. So um, uh, sort of figurative manifestations of first-person sort of phenomenological mind states, which is a really over-the-top way of saying, you know, their way of seeing the world. And, um, you know, I think both... John James covered this in his Neurotypical Gaze video essay to a little, little small degree, and I've written about it myself. And I think what's really crucial about this example of a sort of evocation of a mind state is that, yes, there's filmmakers who aren't autistic creating them, but they have lots and lots of evidence from um Grandin's detailed writing about this phenomena of like seeing many multiple pictures um, and her sort of... I mean, I I do believe that the, the sort of visual language of these diagrams is much, much closer to her professional practice and the sort of diagrams she creates. And I think that's a much less literal attempt to manifest her sort of internal mind's experience. I think it's sort of like a sort of bridge towards a way of thinking about geometry rather than actually literally that's what her mind looks like or feels like, you know, when she does actually describe her way of describe um, experiencing these models, she talks about a much more three-dimensional working model that's highly detailed with with individual rivets that she can model in these complex three-dimensional spaces. So if they were going to be more literal about interpreting her sort of ab- abilities to visualize uh, it would probably look much more like three D animation, but I think what's really yeah what's also really important is that she's gone out uh, in public on like a TED talk. She says, you know, it's it's really great that this film exists because it so does such a good job of um, uh, visualizing what I've trying to be dis- trying to describe my ability to think in pictures. So we have that sort of confirmation that these are very good representations of something which can only really be experienced by her. Um, and, with that, and and so that's really great in this instance. But the problem is with ev- evocation is you often get people not providing feedback, not working collaboratively to create these visualizations of, of subjective difference. And they often, are, in my experience looking at animated documentaries, become a sort of vehicle for unconscious prejudice where neurotypical people are sort of fantasizing about what it might be like to be autistic and not actually having any information to provide details for those fantasies so this happens to be a very good example where those problems have been avoided
3: yeah that's really interesting because i i went into the film thinking um I, i was a bit uh curious as to how they would deal with it and whether it would turn into some kind of, you know, autism, like fetishistic, autistic voyeurism for neurotypicals, or whether, you know, if it would be quite voyeuristic. Um, But I I didn't think it was, really. I think it's a great um, depiction of Grandin's life and Grandin's autism. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a great lesson on autism in general because a lot of the way that they evoke her autism is from her point of view and it doesn't necessarily extend to a lot of other autistic people because obviously everyone's experience of autism is very different Uh, and there's a lot of points that I could really identify with what they were showing and at other times I, I, I was watching it saying okay this is what Temple Grandin experiences and this is how she thinks Uh, Which I thought was very good, and I can see why uh, it can be such a release to see your own um, frame of mind depicted on film, because that's sort of my my own goal as a filmmaker and uh, and someone who who writes about autism in film. I did go I did go into it probably a bit too sceptical, just because I'm always I always have an like an eye for whether things are represented properly, and also, especially for neurotypical actors playing uh, autistic people. But I think the great thing about Claire Danes is that she, her sort of thing is, is playing characters with very complex uh, disabilities or, in other cases, mental health issues. So she's, or we know she's already done a lot of research into how to treat that sensitively. Um, and I think she does a really great job. Um, we'll probably go on to that. A lot more later um but I thought it was it was really harmless as opposed to a lot of other films that attempt to tackle autism in a way that is very progressive i e you know music <laughs> i think it it's yeah it has very good intentions, and it's it's very telling that Temple Grandin herself endorses the film because you know it's it's always nice to see you know your experiences depicted truthfully on film
1: I think um something that's come up a bit during the discussion just now and and something that's quite important to note is that it's the film is like it's a depiction of a specific person's life a specific autistic person's life rather than trying to trying to portray this is what being autistic is like for everyone which a lot of other films do especially if they're fictional and yeah, there there were points which resonated with me of, of uh, Temple Grandin's or, or the depiction of Temple Grandin's um, interior life, like the, uh can't remember what it was, about uh, the, taking things literally like turns of phrase, like that's something that still happens to me. Like I'll visualise, for example, raining cats or dogs, and then I'll like check myself and be like, this isn't what people mean. Like I've learnt <laughs> what people mean. But uh, other parts were just completely... You know, um, not well, alien sounds, actually <laughs> completely alien to me. Like, um, like I'm I'm terrible at maths. So I'd never be able to visualise any angles or anything like that. So, yeah. But um, also, I really like that the depiction wasn't. With a lot of films, I feel like it's they they do these what you described, Alex. Was it evocation? They they do this only to to show sensory overload. Whereas I felt like this depiction of Temple Grandin's um, The Way She Sees the World, it was very, um, very balanced. Like there were moments of comedy in there, there were moments of lightheartedness, there were moments of like this was really um, useful and contributed to her life. and And there were moments of distress. So it was a really well-rounded picture, I felt.
3: Yeah, just drawing on from the uh what you said about the thinking literally and <laughs> things literally when they mentioned the animal husbandry thing that is exactly what i thought in my head and then they showed it literally they showed um uh the person she was talking to getting married to a to a cow <laughs> and that is exactly what popped into my head before so it was this kind of moment of like oh gosh <laughs> i really am autistic you know um yeah i just wanted to say that because i thought that was quite neat how they did that
4: yeah that was a really really nice moment one of the things that it that struck me in in thinking about how we're asked to experience her whether it's in her shoes as we've, we've been talking about the problems with that are we trying to to see as an autistic person if we're neurotypical does the film sort of open that up as a possibility um or on the other hand, as, as you were saying, Georgia, is it kind of voyeuristic, looking at someone from a distance? And I think I think it's sort of is, it, 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 it's it's offering something slightly outside of those two poles. Um, and one of the, one of the ways in which it does it is is through speed. That there's a real speed of connection, and it uses film editing techniques in that way to make these very very fast connections. Um, in, including that one about Animal Husbandry, where we we don't get a sense of of, of Temple grounding being you know a bit slow witted, we get a sense actually of the speed at which he's kind of firing to you know making all of these connections. And I, I very much like that about the film that it was it, it sort of felt as though it was it's almost a struggle to keep up with her. You know, here's, here's someone who has um, so many different um, apprehensions and perceptions. Of of life as it's happening. Like how how do we possibly compress those in this, into this film? And I think the film uses uses its own medium in that way. That it uses um, it uses editing. It uses compression of experience. It uses flashback as well in in quite um, quite a structural way through the film. That we keep moving back to key key moments in her life. Um, so so yeah, thinking about that in relation to what you were saying, Alex, as well about evocation. I wonder how that figures, the sort of the speed of connection and whether that borders on caricature at times. And whether caricature is ever sort of evocative whereas caricature outside of evocation, I'm not sure. Evocation always suggests to me something about um, feeling, whereas caricature feels very m- mental, cognitive.
0: This is not a fully formed thought, but like coming off that... Um... I think one of the things I, I like about this film, and I appreciate about this film, is that while it seems occasionally to sort of veer almost into caricature, I, I feel like that that's tied often tied with kind of the joys of of Temple's life and the pleasures of her life, and that her happiness. So there's a lot of her happiness in here, which is really nice, and, and it's not it's not a, a doom and gloom kind of film. So there are moments where she's. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the moment when. She starts to um, the film starts to take on a kind of uh, briefly an aesthetic of of the, uh, the the Man from Uncle program that she she likes watching, which is a, a the Man from Uncle is a kind of classic spy TV program, um, which she's a fan of, uh, and there's a moment where. Um, She's on she's on campus at her college, and she has. I mean, this might take a bit of explaining, but she has her squeeze machine, the the one that she's create she's built and made herself in her dorm room. And this is a machine that she's used to sort of that she sort of sits in and and calms down in when she's when she's overly stressed. This has been taken out of her dorm room and wrecked and thrown in the rubbish by people who think it's. By the the authorities who think it's um something that's a little bit perverted and that she's getting some sort of like sexual pleasure out of it. And then instead of like dwelling on that in a gloomy way, we get this lovely scene where she's sort of being the being a spy, really, and she's sort of she's turning turning on a torch and the music's kind of going do and she's sort of making her way through the campus and she's sort of, you know, avoiding the security and that kind of thing. And I think what I I think that sort of thing sort of regularly happens throughout the film, and I think that's quite a nice thing, actually, it sort of shows that um that some of the sort of quick and z- zingy th- thinking in in Temple's mind is it kind of sometimes can veer towards caricature, can sometimes veer towards being a bit cartoonish, but is always and is is quite often tied to her the joys that she gets out of life and the pleasures that she gets out of life, and I think I I think that's something I definitely appreciated, especially since quite a lot of autism narratives are are centered around you know doom and gloom and around failure and around um stress and not being able to do things but you know temple is someone who who evidently has been able to do a lot of things and uh i think the film finds fun ways to sort of draw that out i think you know i th- i find it i mean janet
2: you've um combined these two ideas of uh, caricature versus evocation, one being a sort of more mental phenomena, one being a more full of sort of feeling phenomena. I mean, and that's, but they, I'm really struggling with that sort of uh, duality. And, you know, for me, evocation is very much a deliberate attempt, explicitly in this context, a deliberate attempt to visualize someone's mental processes. Um, so you can have evocation that's accurate or inaccurate, exaggerated or... Or, and or like sort of verified carefully um whereas the idea of this sort of representation slip it makes more as much sense to evaluate in terms of like is this sort of respectful portraiture or is it a sort of grotesque and humorous caricature and that's the sort of pole on which I think of it um and the fact that we have Temple Grandin saying oh yeah this is a great film I, I totally advocate for it feels like it can't truly be sort of slipping into caricature in the sense that it's sort of disrespectful. Um, Whereas like, you know, we mostly think of caricature as like sort of political cartoons that are uh, deliberately exaggerating sort of features and um, uh, for disrespectful reasons, essentially. Um, So those are the the frameworks I have for understanding caricature and evocation. And I feel like uh, what's most important always comes back to, you know, Temple Gambit's sort of uh, thumbs up when it comes to this project. Um, Yeah, so I think, you know, whether it's accurate or inaccurate is a a different matter, really. And I think all representation has this sort of mediation effect and you're going to end up with some sort of product that is a few degrees or many degrees separation from reality. Um, But uh, I still think the the overall effect is like one of Ernest's
1: earnest attempt to uh sort of create a portrait um I, I i do think slightly even as an autistic person it was a bit uncomfortable at first to see claire dane's acting autistic can't really think of a better way of phrasing it but you know she it knowing her in other roles it did seem quite over the top sometimes and I mean they gave her false teeth I think so at first it was a bit uncomfortable to see her a neurotypical as far as we know person acting this way but then I think yeah I was quite skeptical like Georgia at first I guess just because my guard was up but then I very quickly got got used to it and accepted that this was a particular particular person i think i think this idea of um what one particular autistic person versus autistic people in general is it might might be complicated a little if if people who aren't familiar with autistic people are watching this film and they kind of see this as as the blueprint, in a way, like this, this is how autistic people act. Even though the film doesn't doesn't portray itself as such, there's always that that fear was in the back of my mind that, um, then, for example, parents, caregivers might expect all autistic people to to behave that way, to to appreciate those very specific. Um, sensory uh, needs and and to be able to I guess um, be successful academically as Temple Grandin has and, and in her career you know she's done really amazing things and I think yeah that there is that danger that that will be expected of a lot of autistic kids and and in a way um I mean um so we're shown in a flashback that Temple Grandin didn't talk for a long time she was nonverbal until she was 4 I think and 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 the, the the doctor who's quite quite cruel he says that he doesn't think she will ever talk and she should be institutionalized and then at the end of the film she's talking to a whole room of people about her success it's kind of um just, just the the narrative of the film might, to some people, show like an overcoming of autism, which is a bit of a worry, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with that completely, John James. I I think there is a there is a concern there. There is a question mark over that, and it, it is worth noting as well. Although my my knowledge of Temple Grandin's history isn't massively strong but one of her first books that she wrote was called I think it was called Emergence and and the sort of vibe I guess of that was uh, I used to be autistic and now I have emerged through my autism and I'm no longer autistic I am to, to a certain extent I've got beyond it and have been cured of it and that wasn't quite what she meant but there was but, 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 but when that that first sort of biography came out that was the kind that was the kind of interpretation of it in a way and you're right there is a sort of sense of that at the end um she goes to she goes with her mother to a um a kind of conference type thing where it's a room full of parents uh of autistic children and there's a few autistic children in the audience as well and there's a man on the stage at the front a sort of professor giving a kind of Uh, A speech which doesn't seem to be going down particularly well, and then Temple stands up and she talks about herself. But she does in that. It it is important to note that in that moment, you know, she does address the fact that she's autistic and continues to be autistic. And because one of the um, one of the parents in the in the crowd says, you know, how did you, how were you cured? And she said, oh, I'm not, I'm not cured. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still autistic and always will be. And I see, you know, that's an important moment and an important thing to to emphasize, and I'm sort of glad that that was in there, because there is this slightly murky rhetoric around the sort of early days of the Temple Grandin phenomenon, I suppose, about whether she was, she has actually sort of emerged through um, her, the difficulties of her autism, I guess. And yeah, you, I, I completely agree with you as well, that there's a, there's a slight danger that this film suggests that, you know, all autistic children will go on to become to have PhDs and and that's that's an unfair um an unfair thing to expect and you know autistic people are, are completely valuable individuals without without having to go through the education system like speaking of somebody who's the brother to an autistic person who will who who's never been you know mainstream educated and will never get a any kind of degree, or uh, even an undergraduate degree, or any kind of education that that doesn't then devalue my sister or any people like my sister, just because that's not possible. So yeah, there is a there is a perhaps a slight danger that there is a kind of a, yeah a narrative of of a of a, of a great achievement, um, which is not necessarily or shouldn't be expected of all autistic people. But then having said that it is a biopic it's a film individually about Temple Grandin so it's, it's perhaps not as you said John James before um it's not about necessarily about autism in its entirety it it does manage to keep its focus pretty well on Temple as an individual it perhaps would have been nice to maybe see a couple of other autistic characters in there if there was such a possibility for for that um but yeah i i guess that 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 makes that kind of makes a sense makes sense and i and i quite like i did also quite appreciate that flashback scene where she's talking where her mother is um talking to the to the doctor who who is diagnosing uh the young temple, and at that point temple is nonverbal and she's sort of sitting in the room and looking she's sort of um she's i think she's sort of drawn in by the the pattern of the wallpaper on the on the wall. Um and that moment is a moment where the um that theory that was prevalent at the time, the theory of the refrigerator mother, is sort of completely ridiculed actually and and I think that that's again a really nice and important moment um for people listening who don 't know what the refrigerator mother theory was so this was a theory that that was prevalent in the 60s I think 50s 60s 70s and sort of still echoes on a little bit It was this idea that autism was caused by the uh, you know a a lack of love and care and attention on the part particularly on the part of the mother towards a child but generally as well on the part of, of both parents towards the child and that this was a reason for why a child becomes autistic is because they were they were not loved properly, really, by their by their parents, both after they were born and also while they were in utero. Um, so this, that's where this term "refrigerator mother" comes from. And this moment is 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 sort of yeah included actually, and then later is kind of completely torn apart. And uh, I, I thought that was yeah, it was nice, and it was it was a neat way of showing that. But not only was it it was neatly shown within that scene itself, because. There's the doctor who you don't warm towards at all who is saying this. You get the mother's reaction as well. But then the director Jackson, he's careful to also include Temple within that um scene itself. So her Temple as a as a young girl who's there and she's looking at this wallpaper which is a little bit misaligned and I think you get this kind of you get the kind of animated visualization of the of the wallpaper being aligned and uh, and then she's looking at the sand falling in an hourglass and then later she's looking at a um, a chandelier and the patterns of light of the chandelier on on the ceiling um, and again it was just another really neat, neat way that the film sort of visualizes what's actually important to autistic people and what's actually going on potentially in an autistic child's mind in that sort of situation. So, yeah, I think that was a, another moment, another scene from the film that I appreciated, I think.
4: Yeah, I think I, I, I was struck by that scene in, with the uh, the diagnosis um, and the way in which the doctor also speaks down to the mother. There's the, the sexism and embedded in that when, when she has to... He says, perhaps you can bring your husband in to speak to me. And she says, actually, I've got degree from Harvard. Um, that was a nice moment. But I think I think there's something about the film that we haven't noted yet, which is that it is historically located and you're touching on that now, David, when you're thinking about that, the refrigerator mother. And I think it draws on certain debates from those moments like that and it's, it's redressing that that actually autism isn't caused by something and it's there to be cured. It's you know the, the line we get earlier on in the film not, not less but different. Um, that's the vision from now that we're viewing the past from Um, but I think it also brings in some other sorts of um, you know well-discussed or received ideas about autism that aren't quite so dealt with in quite such an astute way and one of those for me is when um, the young temple is with her aunt and her aunt is taking photos of her and they're played back. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of photos on the bed and her, her aunt is picking them up and saying, you are here, you know, what? what what's your expression here? Oh, it's happy and, you know, it's written on the photograph. What's this one? It's satisfied. That's written. And it, it was very much in the mode of uh, Mark Haddon's curious incident of the dog in the night where, you know, autistic people have to learn how what feeling looks like and, and it's a sort of induction into that, that world. I thought that was a bit uncomfortable. I thought that was a, a bit of a replay um, of something that's quite quite cliched and problematic about autism. Another set of ideas about autism that that we've touched upon in other podcasts is the relationship with animals, that sense of the, the specialness of 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 autistics understanding animals in a sort of intuitive way. And I think the film raises this very directly and and also in, in a difficult way because, of course, Temple Grandin does have this, we, is shown to have this special intuition about how the cattle are experiencing this traumatic moment of their, their walk towards slaughter. Um, but, of course, she eases the path towards slaughter, ultimately, in what she designs for them. So I thought there's a whole bunch of quite difficult things to unpick there about what's, what's being... What's being uh, suggested about an autistic sensibility and its relationship to animals, and 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 what's being what's being suggested about about animals and and our relationship to them as as food?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I have to jump in on that because I had this noted down as well. Uh, as somebody who is uh, so I'm I'm vegan and I'm um, always very conscious of of animal and animal welfare, and this is something that I've. I can't quite get my head around yet uh, about Temple Grandin. It's something I've known about for a long, long time, um, and I can't square it with my own ethics at all. Because in one hand, there's a kind of a sort of she, On the one hand, Temple Grandin has written really, in really interesting ways about animals, and and has this. Uh, so she's written this other book, which I've actually got in front of me here, called "Animals in Translation: The Woman Who Thinks Like a Cow," and she's written it some really interesting and important things about thinking as animals and how that can help us um, understand animals better and sort of commune with animals a little better. And, and I think that's really important. I think that we could all do a, a much better job of thinking from the point of view of, of, a, of an animal and understanding how an animal thinks and feels and behaves and that's clear within the uh, within the film as well. She's she's conscious of things that a lot of the other sort of the handlers on the feedlots don't see, which is like cows getting freaked out by clanking chains or by a draped jacket that shouldn't that is sort of in the way of where they're supposed to be walking, and that that's, things like this can really f- freak out a herd of cows and and make them anxious. Um, and so that's kind of kind of wonderful but then on the flip side of that yeah she's designing these this is exactly what temple Grandin did she designed these um this kind of this very elaborate walkway kind of thing these these chutes that that guide cattle to the point where they get slaughtered and her reasoning for this was twofold one that it's a more humane way of handling Large amounts of cattle towards this point of being slaughtered, and two it 's also economically a lot better for the for the slaughterhouses because fewer cattle die on the way to the um or get too stressed out on the way to actually being uh, to actually being killed but yeah she she creates this system which makes it much more efficient for masses amounts of cattle to be killed in this kind of industrial farming sort of way and then later we get that bizarre scene which i can't which i really don't like but there's this bizarre moment where where temple herself in this kind of vision you know puts a bolt through a cow's head and and it's all very angelic and she's almost kind of godlike as she's kind of killing this cow and it's a sort of realization of her of her entire vision of of this humane way of of leading of leading cattle to slaughter and as somebody who just does not like industrial farming at all, and does not like the the killing of animals for for the consumption of meat, is um, is a really difficult thing to to square. On the one hand, I really appreciate her attention to animal welfare and uh, and and thinking as an animal and on the other hand i just don't understand why why she does not then take that next step to saying well maybe we shouldn't be eating animals at all or killing them at all but her justification for it is you know we we raise animals for slaughter and therefore we should respect them and slaughter them in the most humane way possible and i can go along with that i can agree with that to a certain extent i just think that personally i start at the the stage before that and say we shouldn't really be raising animals for slaughter but um yeah it's a complicated and interesting and confusing one but yeah this is something that keeps coming up in in our podcast and also in 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 discussions around autism is this connection with animals and there are quite a lot of other uh, autistic people out there who have who sort of talk about strong connections with animals the person that i noted down when i was watching this is um chris packham the british natu- naturalist who who hosts spring watch who's autistic and he talks a lot about um Obviously, he talks a lot about animals and this connection he has with animals. The other one is um, the Irish young Irish writer Dara MacAnulty, who wrote a a book called Diary of a Young Nat- Diary of a Young Naturalist last year. Very good book. Um, who, as, as well, has, has been talking about his autism and how that has helped him to connect with animals as well. So it's a really interesting conversation that continues on, and uh, and Temple Grandin sort of sort of stands as the sort of of the first version of this i guess the kind of the ur text of of, uh, <laughs> of autistic cre- connection with animals but it's one that comes along with this slaughterhouse rhetoric which i'm not entirely 100% comfortable with it's a complicated one really interesting
3: um yeah i when i was going into the film i tried because I, really, I was already aware of what temple grandin does and uh her relationship to like slaughterhouses so I try to kind of separate my own sort of thinking and ideology from it just because this is not what the film is about. So I have to kind of separate it. Um, but there were points where I felt I felt like I couldn't do that because from the start they sort of established this affinity she has with the animals where she goes into the, the pen where the cows are and she lies on the floor and she... Um, she feels the heartbeat of the horse, things like that, which kind of show that she is, you know, she feels some kind of um, like association with them, which again falls into potentially a problematic stereotype about autistic people and animals, which I don't personally think came through in the film. I don't necessarily think that's what that was. I think it had good intentions, but it shows how horrified she is at the way that these animals are being treated. And then there's that scene where she, um, I think she brings her her master's thesis to. um, I've forgotten what the character is, but she says, "You know, this is uh, if you treat them in a more humane way, it's good for business." And alarm went off in my head, (laughs) Uh, and I was like, "This is very strange to me because throughout the film, they've kind of shown that she cares so much for these animals, and you know." Like David said, you'd think that that she'd do that, but I, I mean, I I mean that's not necessarily wholly a critique of the film. I just thought it didn't necessarily succeed in that identification with the animals. If what she does for a living is um, enabling these um, slaughterhouses through, you know, better business, um. So yeah, I I tried, I really tried to <laughs> separate that when I was watching it. But I think it was difficult to to link that, um, I don't know, her, her affinity with the animals. It just, it didn't really succeed for me, whether that was what they were trying to do or not, which kind of confused me.
2: Um, yeah. I mean, I really liked that scene where she was trying to, explain the business benefits of acting more ethically towards these animals. Because for me, it sort of was this really great example dispelling this myth around autism of lack of empathy, because it would take sort of very good insights into how other people, other people's priorities to, to sort of be that persuasive. So it's, it was like a sort of almost like a victory against Sacha Baron, no, um, Baron Cohn. What's the guy's name? The guy came up with the sort of uh, theory of... Simon. Simon. Not not Sachin, Simon. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Um, uh, Yeah, so that was, I thought, had really obvious um, sort of uh, useful points narratively. Um, And I think, you know, one thing we've not mentioned in this debate around animals is she says a few times that these animals wouldn't be here if we didn't have a meat industry and and we ne- they are now here and so it's our duty to treat them with respect and, and, and if we can remove suffering before they die when they're gone in an instant then that's surely an important thing to do but you know I'm not a vegan and I, I feel a little bit less uh, confronted by this issue but one thing I was going to say also is this moment when there's a sort of dreamlike memory of when she was touching a a cow's sort of chest as they were slaughtered uh, she's not actually the one doing the killing and as she's having this um sort of reminiscence um but she, we have this moment where she's sort of discussing where do they go and i think this one line really stood out to me throughout the film as this sort of i mean i i wonder if it's an actual direct quote from any of her books or 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 her, her dialogue in real life, because it just seemed like a very sort of like faux, naive um, sort of framing of, of an obviously impossible metaphysical question. And it just is revisited over and over again, this idea of, you know, what is death? And it seems like it's a sort of emblem of difference between her and the neurotypical characters around her. Even though they're not, they're not really in different positions. She's just curious about, you know, what is, what exists after death, which is like a, a thing that we all contemplate. But it was just, just presented as this sort of like overt signal of difference, and I, it made me a little bit uncomfortable. Just like the sort of, yeah, I guess it's a different problem if it really is her phrasing and how she talked about it throughout her life but we don't really know that it's a sort of fictionalisation so I wonder why it was emphasised so much.
4: Yeah I I think that's an interesting question and I, I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is but it, I think for me that moment spoke to the pathologization of Uh, neurodiverse people historically as people who don't think symbolically you know who think very literally um or think in a concrete way as it's been described in the history of psychiatry and so on um and i i think i think it's quite a it's quite an ambivalent moment in the film or not ambivalent ambiguous moment in the film because i think you could also read it um in a way that Temple Grandin is, is asking a question that is quite existential, but we might mistake it for something very literal. I mean, it's it's it, it's it's a very profound question. Where do, where do people go to? Where, where has the horse gone to? Where has it gone to? Where what happens in the moment of death and after death? And it's a question that, in the you know, typical veneer of the world, we're we're encouraged not to think about that and to repress. What well, is actually a, a really fundamental question about our, our existence. So I think th- I think that moment offers something other than the 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 kind of the damning of of um, autistics as, as literal thinkers. I think I think it can read more more than one way. But um, I'm, I'm I'm also thinking I'm I'm remembering it in the in the interview with with Temple, seven minutes with Temple Grandin in, in the short film. She talks about um, her entry into the working world as a moment in which uh, being a woman was far more of an obstacle than being autistic, and she she says that. And and I think that the film picks is picking up her her view of, of her own life as something where um, being a woman is is, is is has also been a very important part of. Uh, not fitting in. And we we see that in the film. We see her rejection of the dress um, quite early on. We see her difficulty in being taken seriously in the man's world of cattle farming and industrialisation. And I think it's also there in the kind of quite strong... Maternal framework that we get with the mother and the aunt to be to begin with. And it reminded me a little bit of, of our discussion of the, of Chloe as The Rider, where we were picking up on the sister in similar ways. Um, a sister in that film who is autistic and played by an autistic actor, um, also refuses certain tropes of femininity and clothing and so on. Also has particular relationships to the horses on on the ranch there in, in a number of scenes. So. Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about uh, think about gender in in relation to autism in both of these films.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's really nice to see her really holding her own in um, on the feedlot and, and and in the college and in these and a lot of these kind of like male environments. She's she's not fa- she doesn't seem particularly phased by the overly masculine arena even when she's like because there's a few times she's wanting to complete her um her thesis and uh and the feedlot manager and various workers there are very resistant to her being there and yet she still keeps going um she keeps turning up she keeps even when they sort of they smear a lot of bald testicles and blood all over her car um, she just wipes it off, shouts at them, and then comes back the next day. So it's like, she, yeah, it, I thought it was really nice to see that, actually. And, and um, it's interesting that she brings that up, actually, in the seven minutes short film, because there's less of an emphasis on that in the film, or less of a direct emphasis, I suppose. She's never really, unless I'm misremembering, but she's never really, there's never really a direct discussion about her womanhood or femininity other than other than us sort of visually seeing her as a woman amongst in, in a very male centered environment, there is that wonderful moment where she has to where she um disguises herself as a man in order to get onto the feedlot, which is quite fun where she sort of buys some some jeans and makes them all muddy and gets a cap and and gets a, a big old uh, pickup truck and throws a lot of mud on it and then drives in and kind of just goes all right to the uh, <laughs> to the guy on the on the gate and then drives through and there's a real there's a moment. There's a shot of her, you know, grinning with pleasure that she's managed to get away with this moment, which must be. I don't know if that's been invented for the film, but it felt it felt like one of those things that she probably did do, and and that's kind of wonderful and and um, really really nice to see. One of the one of the things I wanted to bring up um, was a consideration of the of the neurotypical people in this film. I suppose there's there was a, a refrain that started sort of creeping in towards the end of the film. Um, which i wasn't wholly convinced by or sure about which is this there was this this metaphor that started creeping in about um neurotypical people holding open the door for autistic people to walk through now doors are a visual meta- metaphor that keep recurring all the way through the the film because um, at some point, uh, someone tells Temple that she just has to see the problems that she's faced with as doors that she needs to just get through. And frequently throughout the film, there are actual real doors um, that she she sort of has to make her way through in order to um, progress through her life, I suppose, and, and move, move through difficult moments, um, including automatic doors, which she seems to have a, a fear for uh, in uh, supermarkets and uh, yeah and then there's this uh, this slightly heavy-handed metaphor which comes through towards the, towards in the sort of so second half where it's there are various neurotypical people who hold the door open for her um for her to walk through and i wondered about that because it sort of it sort of positions it sort of gives neurotypical people the the sort of position of power in that situation it sort of suggests that it's up to the neurotypicals to um, to open those to, to make those doors available. Which, to a certain extent, it, it, that is true. And and you know, neurotypical people could do a lot more to ensure that various doors are are open, you know various metaphorical doors are open for autistic people to be able to go through. But I wondered if that slightly robbed uh, Temple of some of her agency, or it slightly robs autistic people some of their own agency about about opening their own doors and going through their own doors. Um, I don't know. I don't know what other people felt about that. I mean,
2: I, I, th- there seem to be like three sort of basic groups of neurotypical supporting characters, the sort of villainous experts, like the psychoanalyst, the psycho- psychologist at the beginning, and the expert at the conference, who all of whom do sort of outrageously offensive things like, you know, mother, control your child at this conference and things like that, um, as well as the sort of sexist characters. And and they're a bit one-dimensional and very easily taken down through obvious sort of logical means. And then we have these allies, uh, like you're referring to, the sort of characters out in the world who are um, tolerant and supportive and um, provide... Opportunities open doors figuratively, um, and then we have this sort of highly invested characters as well, the family members and the school teacher, um, who were, were like pivotal supportive roles. And I think, you know, there's so many instances in this film where Temple Grandin has uh, sort of latched on latched onto an idea and worked very hard and successfully at achieving these ideas. Um, and just the idea that it's also important to sort of work cooper- cooperatively with other people and and allow other people to to be helpful, let's say, didn't seem that problematic to me because there were so many instances where she's achieved so much on her own and on her own steam. And I think, you, I think you're right that it might be this sort of coded message about the importance of allyship Um, But it didn't seem that bad to me um,
1: from my perspective. I don't know, what do you guys think? I I didn't even um, realise it was a metaphor. (laughs) I just thought she was holding the door open. I just thought it was, um, you know, handy. Um, Yeah. I think um, something I I, um, picked up on um, about the neurotypicals in the film was... um, a bit so i think the the mother of temple is is worried about her using the squeeze machine because it will be a marker of difference um and in the film there's sort of these these moments which are sort of m- markers of neurotypicality like temple achieving certain things and one of the things that made me feel a bit uncomfortable in the film was um how touch was made there was such a big deal about temple being able to touch people um almost as a sign of progress um like she doesn't she doesn't like being touched by people, especially you know in terms of affection or hugs and there's two points I can remember one where she she holds um her her roommates arm to guide her because she's uh, blind and another at the funeral of her science teacher where she's, she initiates a hug with her mother she doesn't put her arms around her but she, she stands close and it, to me it kind of felt like especially the hug The they made a big deal of it like the, the aunt comes and hugs the mother as if like wow she's in my head, it was like, wow, she's, she's becoming normal. She's really, you know, she's really progressing, um, which made me feel a bit uncomfortable. And also just from the body language, it kind of felt like Temple was, um, in the, in the film, Temple was sort of conceding her boundaries to comfort the mother because she felt that's what was appropriate or you know, she just felt that that's what she should do. When it's really, you know, it was her mentor that died. And she's been expected to grieve and perform in a certain way. Which kind of ties into the question of where do they go. The, the autism training that I mentioned right at the start. They, I was told that autistic people aren't bothered by death. Which was really weird. Like, if someone dies then an autistic person will just be like, oh, they're dead now, and move on with their life, which might be true for some people, but for a lot of people who I know that are autistic, including myself, you know, death is a really weird, as it is for most people, I'm sure, but it's like it doesn't doesn't make sense, and it's really difficult to process. So I did, I did kind of like that Temple was asking this question in the film, and a lot of people... I think a lot of the characters around her read it as sort of a naivety that she didn't she didn't know what death was but she was actually asking a really like profound question over and over again and no one had an answer for her
4: yeah for you listening to you talk then john Jones, when me think about how much of the film shows temple grandin adapting to the world precisely that i agree with you about the hugs Mm. I think it is does sort of suggest, you know, or or how moving Temple Grandin is, you know, able to to be proximate with her mother finally, or or the, or the blind the young blind woman. Um, and I, I guess even thinking about her intervention in the slaughter procedure, it's is actually about her enhancing something in the world rather than than changing it. So um, I mean, maybe that's. Those, those are the limitations of, of this film, that, that actually is a film that sort of attempts to celebrate her her success. And she is a phenomenally successful person in the world. She's a professor. She's a, in the US. She's, a, you know, many, many TED Talks. Um, she's a an activist and an ad, advocate for autism, as, as David was noting in the intro. And yet the film does suggest that, her life trajectory has been, been one in which she's having to persuade people really in, in her actions as much as her words that, that, that she, you know, she's, she's a valuable person in the world. I mean, I do think some of that is to do with the film being located in the past. And I think an awful lot has changed from the 1950s and 60s where we see her growing up, those depictions of a world pre-advocacy really it's just as that. As that refrigerator mother myth is being debunked, and, and and about that sort of turning point, as I understand it, that that takes place, the end of the sixties into the seventies, where um, you know neurodiversity begins to be a, a concept that's challenging this this normative paradigm, and um, and and parents begin to advocate for the rights of their children rather than for them to be normal, in inverted commas. So I I think the film is sort of drawing back to those times and sort of positioning them as 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 historical rather than a a story that is you know a a correct version of a life. But I mean one one last thing. Um, I I was struck by that question again. I think it was you, John Jones, asking. You know, sort of talking about that discomfort at the beginning of the film, watching um, Claire Danes acting. And and again, we've come across this in, in podcasts in the past. I'm, I'm just wondering whether, you know, whether it's, it's ever comfortable for someone to be performing autism, performing a character who's autistic. I don't know, are we at that point? Or maybe that's too much of a sweeping question to, to answer, but it, it it seems to me that it might have been more comfortable to have someone who's autistic playing Temple Grandin and and maybe that's changed in the time between when the film was made and was it 2010 and, and now?
3: I did find it quite strange at first um, because as as we've uh, mentioned before, like Claire Danes is quite recognisable and to see her performing or, or just embodying um, someone else's autism is, is really strange and I, I mean, I'm always thinking about um, the ethics of representation, probably a bit too much sometimes, so it just detracts from my enjoyment of films when I'm thinking too hard about um, representation. But I think there, I think there are issues with it, but I don't think that I think Claire Danes, because of her research and because of her um, kind of relationship with Temple Grandin herself. There were moments where I wasn't really thinking about it because it did feel... I think intention is everything in this case, and I think the intention was really good. But then again, it is strange to see someone um, performing autism because, you know, for, for us, it's not a performance. What is performance for us is neurotypicality because that's what we're constantly having to perform in public. So it does feel like a reversal of roles in a way which is is quite strange to see and i don't uh um i don't think it's necessarily that progressive but i don't think it's um as long as it's not a caricature i don't think it's necessarily damaging to anyone
0: but yeah it's complex isn't it in many ways because we've now touched upon quite a few um of these instances where we have uh, neurotypical as far as we know actors uh performing Autism. We saw it in good time. Um, we we see it in. Um, I mean, the, again, you know. So the, the big example of this is Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, which is not something we've covered, but um, uh, you know, that's something that's the, the most familiar. But also, there's 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 Maggie Ziegler in in um, in music, and the the example of music is 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 an example where it's it's gone horribly wrong. But then when you compare that performance to this performance of Claire Danes' performance of Temple Grandin, where it's gone right, it, it, in, in some ways on paper, both of those things look like they should have gone correctly. Like like Sia did talk about when she was making music, or, or at least suggested that she did some research into this, and I I would imagine that Maggie Ziedler, in playing her um, uh, role in, in that film... Did a certain amount of research into the way in which autism presents itself i suppose and yet that was completely wrong and i think you're absolutely right georgia it, it is the it's the question of intention it's the question of what's the what's the what's the the overall intent of the film what's it trying to do and what's it trying to suggest about autism as a as a as a as a lived experience um but i also just sort of think that we're we're now in 2021 it's 10 years 11 years since this film was was out if this film was being made today if this temple grandin biopic was being made at the moment i would imagine there would be justifiable grumbles about casting claire danes in that role one of the things that that one of the problems with music was that when the trailer for music came out, this was before anyone had really seen the entire full film, there was a lot of angry reaction from autistic people online, particularly saying that this is a really poor representation and this is somebody who is non-autistic, who has been cast as autistic yet again. And I wonder if there would be such a reaction if this Temple Grandin film was being made today and Claire Danes was cast in that role and whether um, there would be, you know, I think probably justifiable calls for uh, an autistic actor to be in that role um and it just it sort of indicates you know in what direction we've come, i suppose over the last ten years as as neurodiversity has grown and um and this question of of the performance of autism is is becoming ever more um emphasized uh yeah, it would be I don't know perhaps Daryl Hannah would be cast these days, I'm not sure um Interestingly, I did look at some uh, trivia about this, and apparently Temple Grandin wa- um, was expecting and wanted uh, Sigourney Weaver to be the uh, to be the actor in this in this film, um, partly because they look quite similar, and partly because Sigourney Weaver is very tall, as is um, Temple Grandin. So apparently that was uh, on the cards initially. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I do really like Claire Danes' performance, and Claire Danes has, as you mentioned earlier on, she has a line in in performing in acting in, in roles where you know there's a kind of a neurodivergence that seems to be present you know her role in, in Homeland the TV show um, I think she, the, her character in that is bipolar as far as I know but it's certainly um, neurodivergent in some in some respect uh, so she seems to be able to do that quite well I wonder if I don't know anything about Claire Dane, so I don't know whether that's from personal experience or not um but it does throw up a, a lot of really interesting questions about casting. Um yeah, questions which don't have an answer at the moment, I suppose, but but I, I think that there is a renewed call for autistic actors to be to be placed in these roles, to be cast in these roles. I
2: mean I do find Claire Dane's representation of bipolar disorder in Homeland particularly irritating. I mean, I actually really love the series. It's it's quite exciting watch. But it's almost idiotic, you know, uh, her sort of jazz fits of uh, mania. I mean, I I just, I mean, it's not really for me to judge the responsibility of her managers who seem to just exploit the character's um, intense vulnerability. But it just, it totally sensationalizes um, manic energy as this sort of um, terrorist conquering superpower. Um, But. Still, I mean, I guess it's not the point here. It's just, you know, developing a niche for representing neurological difference is uh, an interesting sort of trajectory for an actress or an actor to sort of uh, be set upon. And um, But, yeah, maybe I think you're right, that it's... I mean, the exception to this tendency for us to move away from neurotypical actors playing um, neurodivergent characters is good time, Um you know, that really was quite recent, whereas uh music was recent and got um sort of ousted, let, let's say. And the other examples, Rain Man and um and Temple Grandin film uh were far enough in the past for for this sort of lobbying not to really organise around that. Um but I don't know, I, I I think so something that's so important to the poor reception of those other films is that the autistic characters function as props for neurotypical characters to go through growth arcs and that's just not present at all in in this um film that we're discussing today. It's so much about Temple Granding and her journey. So that's the one clear distinction that I think is important to emphasize.
4: Yeah, I think I I would add to that that of course Claire Danes is going to be big box office. So, you know, she would secure that the film got made probably that um, that she's just got has that star status but also probably Temple Grandin's you know delight it would seem that Claire Danes was going to be <laughs> was going to be playing her in her life um, there is always that question like you know for all of us who who would play you in your life and maybe, maybe for Temple Grandin it was Claire Danes I, I mean this isn't a, a properly thought through idea
3: but I think if Temple Grandin wasn't a biopic and say that it was about a completely uh, fictional autistic person who happened to pioneer something quite huge in uh, an agricultural or livestock industry, I think it it would be more problematic because um, the, the, the film would be more about autism. But I think because the film is more about the life of one person than it is about autism in general. It, it might be quite strange to cast an autistic person to play someone else's autism because it might tread the line of essentializing it or making, you know, all, all autism is, looks the same. Because what I took from the film was it wasn't... Obviously, autism is a huge part of it, but it was more about Temple Grandin. Than Temple Grandin's autism, which is why I think I don't think a neurotypical act of portraying her is necessarily such a, a bad thing as, say, you know, music or even good time, um, just because it, it wasn't so much studying autistic people in general that Claire Daines had to do, but studying Temple Grandin herself and her own way of speaking and her own um, physicality. I think that's what makes this a lot different from a lot of other things. I think it would be a mistake to watch this film and think this is about autism full stop because it's it's not. And one thing I found quite strange was, I think the tagline is, um, like, autism gave her a vision, uh, she gave it a voice, which I think to an extent undermines Temple Grandin's own intellect because I think it puts it all in. Autism is a superpower that what allowed her to achieve all these things, which to an extent, yes, is true, because her ability to think in pictures uh, definitely helps with her achievements. But I think there's a, a danger of falling into that uh, superpower stereotype of she has this special ability called autism, uh, which allows her to be who she is. And I think that, like I said, that undermines her, her character and her her own individual intelligence but I don't know again that's not like a fully thought through idea I just that's something that struck me
1: um I'm I'm not sure if um if this thought uh, has any sort of um basis I I was just wondering if if something to consider in the future in our discussions and just in general is if there's a difference between neurotypical actors playing autistic characters and non-disabled people playing other disabilities because um because i, I was just thinking about how often non-disabled actors get awards for playing disabled roles and the the one that comes to mind i think is Eddie Redmayne in um playing Stephen Hawking, I can't remember what the title of the film is, but from what I see, there's not as much outcry or, or criticism of these these actors playing these roles as there is about neurotypical actors playing autistic roles. I think there should be, but I, I don't know if there is quite the same amount of criticism and I think it's a bit more accepted, especially by sort of critics and and the academy. And um, I wonder if there's something sort of um, there's something particular about seeing someone perform autism that is is for some reason uncomfortable for us. Because I mean, even starting to watch this film at the, at first, it was uncomfortable for me to see Temple. Uh, to see Claire Taines uh, portraying Temple Grandin, but I got very accustomed to it very quickly because she was playing Temple Grandin, not, not playing, being autistic. But I wonder if that that is a particular issue. I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, John James. I mean, there is within, um, you know, I've done a fair bit of research within disability studies and cultural disability studies in particular, and there is a lot of criticism within that, academic arena about um, non-disabled actors um, playing disabled characters. But you're you're right that that doesn't seem to have really filtered out into the public consciousness as much as this question around autistic performance has. And it might be something to do with, thinking again about music, it's something to do with having to lean towards almost caricaturistic behaviours in order to... Almost in order, to, in order to exaggerate the common, to sort of exaggerate autisticness a little bit, um, you know that how that has to sort of be cinematically shown, and there's 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 almost inevitably something caricature and com- and cartoonish about doing that. Whereas perhaps with a physical disability, or even with something like, I mean, there's a there is a blind character in here that's played by a, an actor who is not blind. Um, there's something. I don't know. There's a kind of, uh, there are visual codes, I suppose that are more that, that audiences are perhaps more comfortable with or are more accepting of, and you're right, they shouldn't be, but, um, it seems to be something that is a bit more seems to, seems to be a little bit more accepted or a bit more normal, I guess. Whereas the question of autism seems a bit more heightened, I suppose. And I think it is something to do with the kind of cartoonish performance of it, I suppose. Um, because the the kind of cartoonish performance of autism on screen does not necessarily correlate to real autistic people are and 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 that that's I think that is a problem. Anyway, we've been uh, we've been talking for quite a long time about this film, and uh, it's probably about time we uh, we brought this discussion to a close. Um, but this has been really interesting. I think this is a this is a, a really interesting film to to think about because it's in some respects it's quite a mixed bag, but I think generally feel the general feeling is that we're we're quite positive and quite warm towards this film. Um although there are certain things that um certain question marks I think about it uh, that may be to do with the fact that it's it's already ten, eleven years old. Um but yeah, really good. really, really great discussion. Thank you for everybody. Um, so thanks again to uh, John James Laidlaw, Alex Wooderson, Janet Harbord and Georgia Bradburn. And this is the Autism Through Cinema Podcast. Uh, please uh, subscribe to our feed and uh, listen back to some of the other episodes that we've been, where we've been discussing some interesting uh, films with uh, autistic content. And we'll be back very soon with another episode. Thank you. Goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, hosted by Georgia Bradburn, John James Laidlow, Alex Whittleson, Janet Harbord, and David Hartley. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.